Our gospel reading is John 11, 1 through 6, and 18 through 44, which is on page 583 in the paper Bibles. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could he not... Could, he, could not he who opened the eyes of the man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. We're going to keep going through John. Um, and we're actually at a significant point in this, this gospel this morning because we are studying the, the final sign of Jesus' public ministry. This is the climactic sign in the gospel of John. Um, 
And John tells us, as we've looked at the last few weeks, that each one of these things that he records is written for a certain purpose. That he has recorded these stories that we might believe in Christ, that we might believe he's the Son of God, and that we might find life in his name. And so this final sign is especially important. It's especially packed. It's especially dense with, with doctrine and, and uh, shows us a lot about Jesus' ultimate purpose. Right in the middle of the passage, right? It, we read it just a second ago. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So it's, it's important for that reason. It's a climax for that reason. But also, uh, as we study this, there's something that's equally important that I don't want us to miss. There's something we, we can't overlook while we read this chapter. Perhaps more than anywhere else, in all of the Gospels, as this miracle is unfolding, we have a special glimpse into the heart of Jesus. In the middle of this miracle that seems to be so connected to Jesus, the big picture of what Jesus came to do, in the midst of this miracle that seems to be so deeply tied to the grand scope of Jesus' overall mission, a mission that deals with all of time and all of eternity and all of creation, in the midst of that, we have this zoom in. We have this moment that is so intimate where he is right you know, up close in front of Jesus' face. We see this story unfold in the context of his love for just one family. We see it in a conversation with two women. We see it as he sheds tears at the death of a friend. And so this passage, it's here to teach us not just what Jesus came to do, but how his love is central to that purpose. How his love frames everything that Jesus came to accomplish. And so I want us to look at it from that angle today. I want us to examine the love of Christ so that then we can understand the doctrine that he teaches. I am the resurrection and the life. And so really simply this morning, we're going to break that down and say the wisdom of his love, the ferocity of his love, and finally, the message of his love. That's what I, where I want us to go this morning. The wisdom of his love, the ferocity of his love, and the message of his love. So, let's talk about the wisdom of his love, right? The, this passage, the whole chapter, gets framed with this idea of, of Christ's love. Verse 5, it tells us, after Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick, it says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So it's this small family, two sisters and a brother. Perhaps they, they live together, um, but he loves them. And that's a special distinction. That isn't said about every single person that Jesus encounters. This puts them in a, a special group uh, that really only some of the apostles uh, find themselves in. Jesus cares deeply for these people. He's close to these people. He knows these people. And that's why the next verse can be a little shocking. It says, Jesus loves them, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. He knew it was serious. We know that. Jesus knew that this sickness was going to lead to Lazarus's death. And yet, because he loved them, 
He waited two more days. But John doesn't let us have the question hanging. He doesn't let us wonder why. He tells us why. He says in verse 4, This illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then a few verses later, he says to the disciples, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So John tells us the reason Jesus waited was because of God's glory. The reason Jesus waited was because Jesus was concerned about the faith of his people. And that's a principle that we see over and over and over again in Scripture. It's, in fact, it's one of the main themes that we find in Proverbs. This idea that God's love doesn't pander to every single desire of our hearts. But instead, God's love prioritizes our holiness. God's love prioritizes our holiness over our immediate happiness. So Jesus loves this family, but he doesn't immediately give them what they're asking for. He loves this family, but he doesn't just give them what they want, because he wanted something more for them. He wanted their spiritual maturity. He wanted more than their immediate happiness. And truthfully, you know, that's the only way you can love somebody. Every other way is, is not really loving another person. It's more loving yourself. And if you're, if you're wondering what I'm talking about, I think every person who has had a child ask them for something they don't need, you know, whether you're a parent or a babysitter, I think you understand what this is all about, right? If you've ever had a kid ask you for something, whatever it is, you know, dessert before dinner or some extra TV time, or, or like for me the other night, you know, our daughter, Jubilee, she's three, and every night she's good for like one wake up in the middle of the night, and a couple nights ago she was just screaming at the top of her lungs, Daddy! Daddy! So I trudge up the stairs, and I go to her bed, and I say, what do you need? I want $10. <laughs> now, at that moment... I faced a predicament, right? I could try to find $10 somewhere, and I could go back to bed. <laughs> or I could engage with an irrational, an irrational argument with this three-year-old <laughs> over what she really needs. Now, God's love is not selfish. God never chooses the easy thing for himself. God chooses what's best for us. Because he cares more about our well-being than about our immediate happiness. And that's exactly what we see here in this story. That's what we see with Mary and Martha. We see that sometimes the reality of that love will be hard. Sometimes the reality of God's love for us won't make sense in the, the immediate circumstances. And, and of course it doesn't make sense to them, right? That's how the story unfolds. Jesus shows up and it tells us that Lazarus has been dead for four days by the time he gets there. And both of his sisters come to Jesus, one by one. Separately, they come to him, and they both say the exact same thing. Did you notice that? When it was being read, you notice they say the exact same thing. They say, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's interesting that they say the same thing because Jesus 
as you may have noticed, responds to them in very different ways. To Martha, he engages her in this theological discussion. He actually gives uh, this grand statement of his purpose and his sovereignty. He says, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day, which is the good Sunday school type answer. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So when Jesus responds to Martha, he tells her why this stuff happens. He gives this declaration of his greater purpose in all of this. He says, the reason why this is happening is to show you and the rest of the world that I am the resurrection and the life. That's that, it's not something that's far away, but it's right here. I am the resurrection and the life. For Martha, he pulls back and he shows her the so, the God's sovereign purpose behind her suffering. He lets her in on, on why it's all happening. And it's exactly what she needed to hear. But really quickly, I just want to step aside here and, and make a note. That question that he asks her at the end, do you believe this? That's a really important question for us in this room. That's an important question for every person on earth to come to an answer for. Because at the end of the day, that is the question that Jesus is asking. Jesus is asking, do you believe this? He's not asking, do your friends believe this? He's not asking, do you come from a family that believes this? He's not asking, do you go to a church that believes this? He is asking, do you believe this? Now, Christianity is a religion that, that is institutional, right? It involves the church. It's a religion that's corporate. It involves this family of, of Christians that you get connected to. But at its core, Christianity is also, it's personal. It has to begin with that question, do you believe this? And Christ, in his wisdom, in his love, he knows to ask her that in this moment. And, and she says, Yes, right? She says profoundly, yes. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. That was exactly what Martha needed to hear. But notice with Mary, he doesn't do that at all. With Mary, when he comes to her, he doesn't teach. He doesn't try to tell her why this stuff is happening. He simply asks, where is he? And he goes with her to the grave and he weeps. People call this the difference between a ministry of truth and a ministry of tears. And I think that's a helpful distinction. You know, Jesus shows us here that, that both things are necessary in the church, the ministry of truth and this ministry of tears. And I, and I think over the years, churches like ours have really struggled with this idea of a ministry of tears. Churches like ours, churches that, that believe that there is truth, churches that take the Bible seriously and want people to know what it says, I think we really wrestle with feeling with people. 
I think we are too quick often to pull out the truth and wield it like a sword. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've sat down with people and I've just heard them unload these stories where, where people have, have come to them in their pain and, and forced scripture on them and, 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 and stabbed them with it like a knife. I think that's why a lot of people in this community turn away from the church. I think that's why a lot of people never come into the church because there's this perspective that we're hard and calloused towards the pain of the world. A lot of times there's nothing worse that you can say to someone who's suffering than, you know, I know, I know it's really hard right now, but God's going to work everything together for your good. Or, I know you're struggling, but don't worry. God's not going to give you more than you can bear. Right? Those things don't help sometimes. And Christ, in the, in the wisdom of his love, knows that. He knows that there's, there's a ministry of truth that you can't leave behind, but also there's a ministry of tears. So that's the first thing I want us to see. Christ and his love, it's wise. He doesn't just give us what we want, but he gives us what we need. He's wise in his counsel. He doesn't just come to us with the truth, but he also comes to us with tears. Well, then the next thing I want us to look at is not just the wisdom of his love, but what I'm calling the ferocity of his love. And for that, I just want to keep digging in this interaction that he has with, with Mary. I don't know that there is another place in all of Scripture where we can see so viscerally the compassion of Jesus. So, so, so intimately how much he cares for people. I mean, look at the verse 35. Jesus wept. I think we could all just stand to take a break right now and take those two words and go think about them for an hour. That is some deep stuff. Jesus wept. Can you get your mind around that idea? This is Jesus. The Jesus, when Paul describes him, he says that by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's who he says Jesus is, the creator of the universe, the one who is holding all things together. And here he is, weeping, crying over the loss of, of one man. You know, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen my dad cry. The image of the Lord of all creation crying, what would that be like? Don't miss that. This is what makes Christianity unique amongst all the other religions of the world. Because at the center of Christianity is not some distant deity, but it is the God-man. It's Jesus who is fully God in all of his power, which we're going to see in a second when he brings someone back from the dead. But also who is fully human, who feels our pain, who has felt our sorrow, who is deeply acquainted with grief. And that means when you're suffering, 
When you find yourself going through something and you don't understand why. Well, in these two words, we, we know at least one reason has to be eliminated, right? Our suffering can't be because God doesn't care. Jesus wept. But let's think about that a little more. Why? Why does Jesus weep? What's he crying about here? Jesus knows what's coming. He already said it in the very beginning, that this is for God's glory. He knows that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. So why is he crying? Why didn't he just come in and say, don't worry, guys, I'm about to bring him back. No need for tears. Cheer up, I'm here. Well, I think the answer is right here in the passage. Verse 33. It says, When Jesus saw her weeping, which is Mary, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit. Now, we have good Bible translations. Uh, ESV is a great one. NIV is a great one. There's, there's plenty of good ones. You probably have a few of them. Uh, if you don't, please take one. We got these blue ones are free. Um, but I think on this particular word, it's not quite right. As I've, I've looked through uh, the commentaries this week, as I've looked at, at the Greek, it's universally agreed, which rarely ever happens. It's universally agreed that, that for some reason we have just decided to translate this word Wrong. That word that we translate deeply moved actually means anger. In in Greek, it's most often used to describe a snorting, angry horse. (laughs) D.A. Carson, in his translation, he says that it should really say that when he saw her crying, he was outraged in spirit. And the message actually does do this. I think it's the only translation I know that, that goes for it. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping, a deep anger welled up within him. And as I've been thinking about that this week, you know, first I had to say, does it really say this? Because this it seems so different from what I've heard. But, but as I've started to wrestle with that and, and understand that that's what it does say, it's turned this story on its head for me. It's completely changed the way I look at this account. Jesus is enraged in this moment. But why wouldn't he be? Because as he is watching Mary's grief, Jesus is seeing not only her pain, but but he's seeing the misery of the entire human race. As he approaches the tomb in Lazarus' death, he's looking directly into the eyes of the very enemy that he came to defeat. I don't think we should be surprised to find out that in this moment, in the moment of Jesus' greatest love, he's also filled with anger. Because that's exactly how a loving God should react. Rebecca Manley Pippert, she put it this way. She says, love detests what destroys the beloved. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, and the sin that destroys. And then she says, anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. No. To be truly good 
One has to be outraged by evil and implacably hostile to injustice. And that's exactly what we see here. Jesus is outraged. He's angered by this evil. Jesus' tears, they're compassionate tears, but they're also vengeful tears. These are the tears of righteous anger. They are the tears that look at Satan, sin, and death, and they say, no more. No more of this. You're going to pay for what you've done. One of my favorite movies is uh, the Western Tombstone. It's like, it's about 20 years old now, maybe a little bit more than that. And it's, it's an awesome movie if you haven't seen it. But it's the story about Wyatt Earp, who at this point in his life is a retired officer. And he moves into this town tombstone to try to make a career for himself. And meanwhile, this town gets kind of overrun by these outlaws called the Cowboys. And for a while in the movie, he's kind of just trying to, to make it, trying to avoid any too much confrontation with them. But about midway through the movie, there's this scene where he and his family have, uh, are attacked. And at that point, everything changes. Wyatt Earp goes and, and he become, applies to become a U.S. Marshal. And there's this confrontation that happens as the rest of his family is kind of driving off in the train and they think that maybe he's on it too and Wyatt Earp shows up on the behind the the outlaws and he corners them and traps them and he gets one of the outlaws down on the ground and he says you called down the thunder and now you got it (laughs) and it begins this scene where he just goes and wreaks havoc (laughs) he takes out every single one of them and I think that is exactly the posture of Jesus here That is how Jesus approaches the tomb of Lazarus. John Calvin says that when when Jesus comes, he comes like a champion prepared for conflict. He is overcome by a hatred for sin. He's enraged by it. He is the righteous wrath of God in the flesh. Think about that. Put that picture in your mind. Come to grips with his anger, lest you ever think that God is just waiting indifferently while people suffer. Lest you ever think that God is sitting silently while injustice takes place across this city. Look at this picture. Put it in your mind, lest you ever think that God is taking your sin lightly. He hates it. He will not rest until it's defeated. The love of Christ is wise. It's tender. He deals with us with compassion. But it is also ferocious. And it is unrelenting in its hatred of sin. And so the last thing I want us to consider then is what does that mean? What is the message of his love in this passage? You see, the other word that gets used when he encounters Mary, he says, when he, when he saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and he was greatly troubled. Jesus is 
is full of anger. And he's greatly troubled. You might even say that he's, he's horrified in this moment. And that word's important too. Because it actually comes up again in the next chapter. When Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Jesus uses that same phrase to describe his own feelings as he approaches the cross. Jesus in this moment was full of anger and he was greatly troubled because he knew what it was going to cost to defeat death. Jesus, as he's walking to that tomb to raise Lazarus, he is thinking about all the horrors that lie ahead of him. Jesus knows that that raising Lazarus is going to be the turning point for him. And it is. If you read through John, you'll, you'll notice that up to this point, all the stories have been about Christ's signs, the work that he did, the things that he taught. But from here on, from this moment on in this gospel, everything else happens during the last week of his life. Everything else occurs as he heads to the cross. The reason this is the last sign, the reason this is the climactic sign is because it's the first step to Calvary. And we see that. It's here, right at the end of our chapter. We didn't get all the way to it, but it says, From that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus is horrified here. Because he knows what what it's going to cost him once he raises Lazarus. And here is where Jesus and and Wyatt are part ways. Right? This is the moment where that righteous anger, in that righteous anger, we also see another picture. We see a, a picture of Christ's unrelenting love for his enemies. You see, Jesus doesn't just wipe out everyone who stands in opposition to him. Because that's us. (laughs) Scripture tells us we are the ones who stand opposed to him. We are his enemies. That sin, it's not some abstract force that oppresses us, but it's something that we are guilty of. That we are guilty of sin. We are guilty of unbelief and rebellion against God. We are marred by sin. Even the good things we do are marred by sinful intentions. And the wages of sin is death. And here's the message of Christ's love. Defeating our death will require his death. To bring Lazarus out of that tomb, Jesus will have to go into it. He's going to have to suffer, not just for Lazarus' sins, but for all of our sins. For yours, for mine, past, present, and future throughout the history of the world. That's the message. He loves us so much that he went to death to bring us life. And because he went to death, Because he died, because he rose again, he can say to us now, I am the resurrection and the life for everyone who believes. Do you believe it? I want to 
draw out two quick practical things here before we close. Jesus tells us, he tells Martha that he is the resurrection and the life. He is the resurrection and the life, right? That means that that Christ's death isn't supposed to be some way out there, distant hope for a future that's far off. But he's saying that that life is offered right now. That life starts today. That if you're in Christ, eternity has already begun. You're living it. Whoever repents of their sin, whoever looks to Christ as their Savior is in Christ the midst of eternal life. That abundant life that Chad mentioned last week, that Christ came to bring, it's here. It's now. It's not sometime far off. He asks Martha, do you believe that? And I think he asks that very same thing to us. Do you really believe that, though? If you're a Christian in this room, do you really believe that he's the life? Are you looking to him for life right now, or are you looking somewhere else? Are you still trying to find your life in lesser things? If you're not going to him for life, there is an invitation for each of us to repent and believe. Life begins now. And secondly, what does that mean? (laughs) What does that life look like? What does a, a resurrection life Look like? What is abundant life? Well, I think we've established after looking at this story that it is not an easy life. An abundant life is not the same thing as a a tear free life, it's not the same thing as a happy life. But it means if we believe Christ's promises, then, then we can trust Him even in the midst of hardship. That we can have peace and joy even amidst the most difficult times. That if we remember what we talked about, that His love is is wise, that He is working for our holiness, not just our happiness. If we know that there is a fierceness in His love, that He feels your pain, that He hates it, that He is committed to ending it once and for all. If you know that, then you can trust Him. If you know that, then you can believe when Paul says that this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. If you believe this, it means that that while we weep, and while we wait, we can do it with the knowledge that we have a Redeemer. That our lives have been redeemed. And we have a Redeemer who loves us and will stop at nothing to bring all of his people to him. Do you believe it? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word. Lord, and I thank you for the the anger that you have towards sin. Lord, I thank you for the the love that you have towards your people, that you would stop at nothing until every single one of us has been redeemed. And Lord, I pray for anyone who is here in this room right now who is just longing for real life. I pray for for each person here who who realizes that, that, that they don't know what it means 
to live in peace amidst the storm. Father, I pray that you would remind us of your love. I pray that you would call sinners to repentance. I pray that you would open your arms to the lost. And I pray for each and every one of us who calls ourselves son and daughter. I pray, God, that you would remind us of what you've done and assure us of your love today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.